1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 1.
0: Isaiah is kind of fun, too, because in 1947, in cave number one of Qumran, they found. Some scrolls that are part of the collection that you and I know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? There are lots of things they found in the Dead Sea that make up in the scrolls. But the most valuable thing they found was 10.2 inches high and 24 feet long, a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And the books are full of the little subtle differences between how it looks versus what we thought it said. And you know what the net of all that is? No difference. The flabbergasting discovery out of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that the Isaiah you and I have is accurate. There's a couple of subtle trivial things that allows uh, researchers to talk about, but they have no impact on the content of the book. That's a staggering, that's a staggering empirical verification of the soundness of the text we have. For the things you and I are going to be interested in, there's only one thing that will be adequate for our purposes, and that is that Isaiah is part of the Old Testament. How many knew that? Good. The Old Testament was translated into Greek from 270 to 285 B.C. And the, and the critics say, well, gee, it might have even gone into, you know, into the 200. You know, it may have taken, spread over a century. Hey, we're still talking more than one century before Christ was born, even if you grant those arguments. Nonsense. Cinch. Because what's going to grab us... And by the way, that's the other problem. That's why the critics have, talk, have to talk about Isaiah 2. Because the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 are so flabbergasting, so precise, that the critics have to late date. If you confront something supernatural and you, want you, and you feel compelled to deny it, you have to argue that, well, gee, it wasn't written, then it was written later. Well, let me tell you, they've got a great problem trying to prove it was written after it was translated into Greek. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, by the time you're through reading Isaiah, you'll be convinced that it had to be written after the book of Revelation was written. A couple of other things. There's some concepts in Isaiah that you'll find interesting. He has, among other things, he has a name for God. He calls God, in a number of cases, the Holy One of Israel. It's a phrase he uses. It's idiomatic of Isaiah. He uses that 25 times in his book. Why am I making a point of that? Because it only appears six times elsewhere in the Old Testament. So it's a phrase that's almost characteristic of Isaiah, right? And by the way, it occurs 12 times in Isaiah 1 and 13 times in Isaiah 2. So Isaiah seems to have distributed that quite uniformly. He speaks of God's highway uh, seven times. He speaks of the remnant a dozen times. The remnant of Israel is going to be a popular theme with him. And that's going to be very interesting because you and I are going to have a lot of interest in the remnant of Israel. He speaks of Zion uh, 18 times, 10 times in Isaiah 1. And, I'm, and when I say Isaiah 1, I'm being cute. I mean in quotes, obviously. There's a one Isaiah, but the, from the, in the idiom of the critics. Isaiah is going to talk a lot about the pangs of childbirth, prophetically speaking. Those of us that are students of Daniel and Matthew and so forth know that's a popular concept in prophecy. It doesn't occur just a couple of times. It's half a dozen times in Isaiah alone. The idea that, that the fulfillment of prophecy is like a woman giving birth. The pangs, you know, getting more and more intense and so forth. He will deal with that frequently. Okay couple of other overview things. Is, this is sort of the get acquainted evening as we get started in the new book. It's, I like to get some of this background stuff out of the way. We're saying, gee, what are we in for here? Uh, what's Isaiah all about? Let's talk a little bit about it. One of the exciting things, and I don't think we'll get into it tonight, but we will next time, the first six chapters of Isaiah, the first natural unit. And in chapter six, we have a vision of the throne of God. And we will take that occasion to explore not only what Isaiah tells us, which is substantial, but I'm going to give you, since we have a break next week, I'd like to give you some homework assignments. So those of you, since you've got a free evening you hadn't planned on, let me fill it up for you. I'd like you, in, in between now and the next time we meet, to read Isaiah 6. Because obviously we'll get to that, but I'd like it fresh in your mind. Read Isaiah 6. But I'd also like you to explore Ezekiel chapter 10. And Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Those three passages, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 10, and Revelation 4 and 5, the thing that ties them together is those are the three major places where we have in view the throne of God. That's a glib phrase. It's hard for us perhaps to conceptualize that the creator of the universe. The one that's beyond time and space, the one that is responsible for everything, has a throne. That's conceptually something we might intellectually consent to. We have a hard time visualizing it. We're going to see three different people who had the opportunity to confront the throne of God, to be there. We're going to discover that those three passages have some things in common. That's always interesting to see what seems to be common to those three experiences we'll also discover those three experiences have some differences some of those we probably won't understand some we can draw some interesting conjectures from so we'll explore the throne of god as we move through isaiah of course after isaiah six comes isaiah seven i know that doesn't come as a surprise but isaiah isaiah seven has of course the virgin birth we talked glibly about the virgin birth Isaiah 7 hits that head on. It's the second second time it's mentioned in the Scripture. When's the first time? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right on target. But uh, Isaiah 7, 14 is the classic passage, and we'll deal with that. And We'll also deal with some of the nonsense that indicts and condemns some of our modern translations, who seem to stumble over some fundamentals. Chapter 9 is messianic. For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. His government shall be upon his shoulder. who the government will be on his shoulder. There's people in the church that say it's supposed to be on theirs. We'll talk about that a little bit. But then we get to, as we move through, we'll get to chapters 13 and 14, and they're going to be a grabber. Literal Babylon. We'll talk about Saddam Hussein and what's going on. You know, 62 miles south of Baghdad. Isaiah 13 and 14 have a lot to say about that. Some one of the most exciting things in your lifetime and mine. Is Saddam Hussein rebuilding Babylon? Why? Because of Isaiah 13 and 14. We've got a whole clear perspective of that. And, of course, chapter 14 has another interesting thing. That'll introduce us to the whole role of Satan, the reality of Lucifer, and the fact that he's going to be incarnate and walking this earth. And we'll uh, talk about that. We'll also, as we go through there, we'll talk about, uh, Isaiah talks about a number of things. Isaiah talks about the rapture. Isaiah talks about the Antichrist, a lot of the Antichrist. We talk about the treaty of Daniel chapter 9. Isaiah talks about the covenant with hell that uh, Israel gets involved in. So we'll get into some of that. And, of course, when we get in the 40s, it's really exciting. Chapter 40, of course, John the Baptist. We'll talk about John the Baptist. We'll explore the possibility that he was actually wearing the mantle of Elijah. That was, you know, that's one reason he may have been drawing the crowd out there in Jericho. Why would people from Jerusalem? I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem, you want to go visit Jericho. you get a rental rent a car and plan the day. That's a drive. But you're telling me that people from Jerusalem were out there visiting the baptisms at the Jordan, which is essentially Jericho, you know, on foot, in such numbers that the temple authorities had to send inquiry to find out what was going on? Why was John the Baptist so popular? certainly wasn't his message. (laughs) He missed the time that they were teaching tact and diplomacy. (laughs) One of the conjectures, and we'll explore the validity of those conjectures, is the the, the idea that uh, Elijah's mantle that fell on Elisha, was stored in the temple in the altar of incense and was picked up by Zechariah to give to his son when he was born and that John the Baptist made. It's a conjecture. It's it's, uh, it's something we'll talk about when we get there. there. These things will all emerge out of Isaiah. When we get to chapter 45, of course, we get this incredible thing about Cyrus, how Cyrus's career was summarized in a letter written to him by name 150 years before the fact. That's kind of interesting. Uh, Cyrus thought so. Also in that chapter, we'll talk about The creation of God. We'll learn some things about the creation you won't find in Genesis. you find in Isaiah 48. We'll also discover the Trinity and stuff. It's going to be fun. We'll discover discoveries in Isaiah that are not in the New Testament. We'll find out why Jesus was never recognized after his resurrection at first. Isaiah gives us a clue. Isaiah will tell us also why the Pharaoh that persecuted the Jews in Egypt was not an Egyptian. And give us some insights there. Thanks to Stephen and Axel uh, 7, and we'll tie that together. We'll also, when we get to chapter 61, we'll take that passage that Jesus Christ selected to open his ministry and understand why. 63, of course, we'll find a physical description of Jesus Christ in a second coming. Stained with the blood of his enemies. Coming from, of all places, Basra. And why, what all that's about. And, of course, as we get into the late 60s and wrap up the book, we'll get a complete pricey of the book of Revelation. We'll discover that most of what we know about the millennium is not from the New Testament. It's from Isaiah. And on it goes. So Isaiah should be a fun, fun book. And the good news is I've gone through my dry and dusty notes. We are now faced with the prospect of going into Isaiah directly. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 1. You didn't think we'd get there, did you? Yeah, I got the regulars are shaking their head. No, I didn't think so. I had some more notes, but I'll save those for next time. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Spans four kings. Four kings. The focus of Isaiah is on Judah and Jerusalem. As you all know, uh, after Solomon there was civil war and the the nation of Israel split into two houses the northern group of tribes calling themselves the house of Israel and the southern group calling themselves the house of Judah and obviously when we say Jew today we technically denotatively mean Judah but connotatively obviously include all that are sons of Jacob if you will, sons of Israel. As we study the succession of kings in both north and south the northern group, we discover those kings go from bad to worse. When we go to study Judah, they also decline, but there's a couple of places where there's, you know, some repair, if you will. But if you were somehow going to plot trend lines, they're both, the trend lines are dismal. But the northern kingdom goes to pot faster. And God, in about 722 B.C., uses the Assyrians as his mechanism for judgment, the Assyrians, who are the dominant world empire at that time, conquer and take captive the northern kingdom, the house of Israel, uh, at about 722 BC. The southern kingdom, Judah, survives about 112 years longer because they, while they're declining, there is here and there uh, some uh, upstrokes, if you will. But all in all, they also decline. They also fail to be faithful to God's uh, requirements. And so he ultimately uses Babylon to judge, takes Judah captive, the famous 70 years uh, Babylonian captivity. When Isaiah is writing, Assyria is the dominant world empire. Babylon is a little city on the Euphrates that's uh, just a pawn of Assyrian politics. It's a nothing in a sense. You follow me? What makes Isaiah a little provocative is that Isaiah talks about the destruction of Babylon. Now to the readers and to his listeners and whatever, that must have sounded bizarre. You know? Because Babylon was a nothing. It was yet to rise to become the world empire before declining. And Isaiah has that all in view. But it's easy as we read Isaiah to get this fuzzy and not have this clear in our mind. So something else to be alert to in the book of Isaiah. There are times it will speak of Israel in a connotative sense, meaning the whole nation, even though they're divided. There are other times the word Israel refers denotatively to the northern kingdom. And we'll have to sort of be alert to the context as to what, what that's saying. Okay? But his primary focus is to Judah and Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem is provocative. Isaiah has a lot to say about Jerusalem. And he has 30 different names for Jerusalem. The daughter of Zion and other things. You'll see there's different phrases they're used. But it's interesting that he uses that that many uh, different things. So we'll keep moving here. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Now we're going to discover the early parts of Isaiah are the heaviest parts. And God is going to lay it on. Verse 3. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people does not consider. That's kind of interesting. How many of you have pets? Do pets know you? Do they respond to you? You've got a dog, does he come when you call him? Most of the time, huh? The guy says, i got a smart dog. I say, are you coming or aren't you? And he either comes or he doesn't. No. It's an interesting metaphor that Isaiah uses here. The ox knoweth his owner. And the, uh, the ass is master's crib. But the contrast to God's people is painful, isn't it? Now, as we read this... It's obviously one of the many things we should do as we read this is see if the shoe fits. Huh? Yeah, I wonder if you and I are as conscious and devoted to the Lord as your dog is when you come home. Glad to see you. Never ignores you. You've got his undivided attention. And you watch that and you say, that's kind of cute. And that's one of the reasons you have a dog, I guess. right? They say everybody has a dog that totally adores you. you. should always have a cat that also totally ignores you to just keep it in balance. It. <laughs> it's interesting how a pet like that can shame us as to the attitude we should have to the Lord. Does He have our undivided attention? When He calls, do we listen? Well, we'll keep moving. for ah, sinful nation... A people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel. There's that phrase. Isaiah's going to use that a lot. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Hey, that's a timely phrase. You thought backsliding was a Christian idiom, right? No, it's right here in Isaiah. They have gone away backwards. That's exactly what it means. You know, when I read these things, it always... It disturbs me that we have the capacity to cause God anger and pain. Those aren't anthropomorphic phrases. God is righteously indignant and he's going, His wrath is going to be poured out. In fact, it's awesome for you and I that His patience is forestalled It's this long. We'll talk more about that here shortly before this chapter is over. It always startled me. I think I've shared this with you before, but it's on my heart. I can remember once having a a circumstance occur with one of my children that manifested in a particular situation incredible ingratitude. I won't bore you with the the fact situation. It's not important. But there was a circumstance where, in this particular case, it was rather dramatic that this particular uh, child was amazingly ungrateful. And as I was pondering that, I got a profound insight. You know, if the child had misbehaved, See, since I have both sons and daughters, I'll be neuter here. I won't mention who it was, because they may listen to the tape. But the point is, if the child had misbehaved, broken a rule of some kind, I can deal with that. I can mete out some kind of punishment. Figuratively speaking, you know, take the child to the woodshed. You know, impose some kind of appropriate, hopefully, response to their disobedience. I can deal with disobedience, right? As a father, what do you do with ingratitude? If I have a child who's ungrateful, what do I do? You don't spank the child for that. The other parent might, there's other things you might do, but I'm speaking from my point of view. What can I do? Answer. Feel pain. And that's about it. I mean, the problem is broader than just some circumstantial thing. It goes deeper. But the point is, what's my response to feel pain? And as I was contemplating that, you know, the difference between disobedience and gratitude I was stunned to realize something else. When I am disobedient to the Father, what's he going to do? He can correct me. Gently, if I'm listening, and if as I'm obstinate as I usually am, he has to, you know, get a bigger stick, right? As they say, don't force it, get a bigger hammer, right? <laughs> when I am ungrateful, what can he do? Feel pain. He's a father. And only fathers in this audience can know what I'm talking about. You have to be a father to understand the father heart of God. And I remember sitting, almost crying, as I realized, somehow, that my innumerable ingratitudes caused God pain. It really shook me up to realize that a puny thing like myself can cause the God of the universe pain. Blew me away. I'll leave you with that. I'll leave you with that. What do you do about it? Well, I'll talk to him about it, for one thing. Remember First John 1.9. That's the Christian's bar of soap. Right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's prepared to scrub the report card clean if we acknowledge it and ask him to. That's a pretty good deal. Still, to understand the Father heart of God. Well, we're off the subject. Verse 5, Isaiah continues, Why should ye be stricken anymore? He's focusing on them. See, it's fifth to the second person. Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. (laughs) Even in the English, it comes across that Isaiah is pretty eloquent. He's obviously speaking spiritually, but he's using physiological terms to dramatize it. I mean, they don't have a small malady, some sore that's got to be healed. From head to toe, they're putrefying with... Well, I won't get more graphic. Isaiah's done it for us. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, the sole of the foot even to the head. No soundness in it. Aren't you glad this is Israel's report card, not yours and mine? Or is it? They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. In other words, they're not even treated. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land, foreigners devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. The daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Daughter of Zion is who? Jerusalem. Jerusalem's an interesting city. It's been besieged 40 times, it has been destroyed 32 times since 1948 it's had four major wars every every time you turn around they're threatening a jihad I keep hoping they'll have one because Israel needs the land every time they have a jihad the borders get a little bigger I was talking to some friends about the West Bank, I said which river I'd look at Genesis 15 not Genesis 12, right? Anyway daughter of Zion is left a booth in a vineyard, is a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Those are all idioms familiar to his readers as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Ah, there's that word again. We should have been like Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now I'll leave it up to you to look it up, but in your notes, those of you taking notes, you might put Romans 9, 29. Paul quotes this verse. No big deal, but uh, you might, those of you that want to just uh, take a little byroad of your own, you can go to Romans 9 and see what Paul does in verse 29. But the other thing I'd like to deal with, you notice here, he says, we should have been like Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. Where is Sodom and where is Gomorrah today? Anybody here from Sodom or Gomorrah? That's one reason I was glad to get out of the defense industry because I could see it coming that someday the homosexuals would push to be a recognized minority and, therefore, be subject to affirmative action so that all of you that employ employees have the requirement to employ your fair percentage of homosexuals. And I could see that in the defense community starting to happen, and I'm glad to be out of that business. Billy Graham really summarized it. I love his quote many years ago. He said it, it spoke of America, but it certainly applies to California. He says, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you look at this country and you realize where we're headed, especially the state of California, it's uh, sad. I'll give you another example that uh, causes me to weep. A friend of mine has a ministry down near the Escondido area. He happens to be of a Baptist background, but he has a school for girls who are in trouble. And what I mean by that, girls who are in drugs or that are, uh, you know, in, in, in their middle teens and sleeping around the neighborhood and that sort of thing. If you're a parent and have faced that, it's a tough thing. What do you do? And one of the things you can do, there are a few schools like this that have the facilities where they'll take a gal like that, typically uh, for a a one-year program, and um, give them the Scripture and bring them to the Lord. You know, at at least most of them do come to the Lord Jesus Christ while they're there, but they certainly uh, do get the benefit of a good, very rigorous, tough, but uh, well-administered program. And they usually have uh, something short of 100 girls down there, and they've done this for years. And while the track record isn't impeccable, it's remarkable. But what's interesting is the state of California looks at those kinds of facilities and wants to license them. What that means is they've got to have regular smoke breaks, and it means that the boyfriends they were sleeping with that you're trying to separate them from have has visitation rights, and, on, and they have all these rules that guarantee that the person will not re- return to a spiritual walk. Well, what's interesting is the state of California violating all the civil rights entered the premises without proper order, sequestered the files, interviewed the girls without the parents' permission, and uh, have, have, are trying to shut this place down. And that's tragic. They've written the governor. They've done all kinds of things. The state of California, apparently, is quite aggressively hostile to Christian activities. Now, that may not be the governor's personal fault. There's, there's active uh, people on his staff that have taken this on as a challenge of all shapes and sizes. I'm just sharing one. But it's tragic that this uh, Christian operation has written all the churches across the country for help. And the only person that replied and did reply and offered them some alternative facilities and tried to help, apparently generally tried to help, was the Mormon Church in Utah. What a tragic, tragic commentary on the body of Christ in its visible form.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.